This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Hello and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. My name is Nick Ashburn. I'm the Director of Emerging Market Strategies at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. And today we'll be talking about impact investing and emerging investment products in emerging markets. Uh, I'm joined by Margot Kane, who is the Vice President of Strategy at the Calvert Foundation. Thank you, Margot, for joining us and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you for having me. So let's just start at the beginning. Uh, what is the Calvert Foundation and where did you start? That's a great question. So we started thanks to the genius of our founders, Wayne Silby and John Guffey, who had started the first socially responsible mutual fund company in the US, Calvert Investments. And they really wanted to figure out a way to capture all of these, all of these incredible investment assets that are circulating through our markets at any given time in the economy um, and direct them towards really high impact community development investments, both in the U.S. and internationally. At the time, most funds and most funds under management were really limited to investing in public equities and public debt. Uh, And the kinds of high-impact projects that really needed capital in low-income communities especially had no access to that kind of capital. So they created the Community Investment Note which is a way to basically bridge those pools of capital circulating in the much larger, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars capital markets and use that money to invest in the relatively smaller niche community development and international development markets globally. Great. And of course, we know that impact investing is kind of a large umbrella um, in the industry, but you all play a pretty unique role in that. Can you talk a little bit more about Calvert's role in impact investing and, and where you see your place in it? Yeah. So we really view ourselves as one of the pioneers of the movement before it was called impact investing. It's had a lot of monikers uh, over the years. We've been doing it for 20 years. We've raised a billion dollars from thousands and thousands and thousands of investors. And the investors part is really where it gets interesting because we raise money from what's called retail investors, which means everyday people in the United States who have access to, you know, a checking account or a savings account or a brokerage account, um, basically you can buy our security depending on the state that you live in. And um, that's pretty unique in the impact investing world. Most people who invest for social impact, partly because of regulatory barriers, partly just because of the economics of it, they are high net worth people or they are institutions. Um, And so we are able to really tap into a much broader market, which makes us very unique and gives a totally different window to the capital markets for high impact investments in the U.S. and in emerging markets. And because you've been at this for so long, you've really seen the industry evolve. Um, What are some of the big changes that you and Calvert Foundation have seen over time? And what are the trends that we should be paying attention to now? Oh, it's so exciting right now. I mean, I think there's so much interest and there are clearly, um, there are teeth to that interest. You know, billions of dollars are starting to move into investing for social impact. So it's a really exciting moment right now where you have this huge range where you have, you know, philanthropic institutions um, that have been doing this also for 20 or 30 years, uh, paired with entities like Goldman Sachs or BlackRock that are just kind of getting into it but have massive resources 
investors from Wall Street and, and their investor base to bring to bear. Um, so it's a really exciting moment, but uh, there's a few there's a few areas that the industry broadly is going to have to solve for, and these are some of the trends that we're picking up on. And one is the issue of scale. Um, a lot of, let's say, you know, if you take the impact investing today where you have an average fund size in any given market of, I'm just picking a number at random, $30 million, and you have, let's say, pension funds that have recently, you know, taken a look at the recent Department of Labor uh, issuance and the ERISA guidelines that they can now invest for social and environmental purposes as well, and they want to make investments in an impact investment fund. Well, a pension fund's minimum investment size is like $75 million. And you have these tiny funds and you have these large pools of capital and there's very little intermediation between the two. So one of the things we see happening in the industry is more people are focusing on building the channels of intermediation, which is sort of a step-by-step process to allow that pension fund money um, or the foundation endowment money to invest in a better society for everybody. The, on the other side of you know the equation, basically, which is where the money is being invested, we see a great explosion in a lot of different markets. It's not just financial access anymore, which is you know microfinance and small business lending. Um, uh, renewable energy is a really exciting space right now. Uh, affordable healthcare services and innovative healthcare tech is a really exciting area right now. Food access and food systems and processing um, is a really uh, fast-growing area, which really into the earlier uh, fair trade and um, producer smallholder agriculture investments that many people like Root Capital have been doing for 20 odd years. Um, so that's just, I mean, it's going all over the place and it's really exciting. So thinking of your, your track record, you're seeing these trends, what would you say are some of the challenges and opportunities that you in your role as vice president of strategy are seeing and would like to incorporate into the long-term strategy well, and short-term strategy for Calvert Foundation? Yeah. I think the biggest one is recognizing the speed of change of these markets and that we are part of the front line in developing new markets. And the second you've developed that market, the second you've proven that community development finance or that microfinance is bankable, you know, commercial capital is going to come in. And that's a good thing. That's the capital markets doing what they're supposed to do, right, which is money seeking an investable opportunity. And we're on the proving edge of that. And every time you've proved a market, you have to move on to another market. So innovation is a necessity. Um, so it's finding a business model that, that enables you to, you know, prove out a market in an increasingly short amount of time, move on to the next one, be incubating the third one at the same time, and still make your margin. Uh, because like any other financial intermediary, we live in our margin. Um, and that's really challenging. So that actually leads me to competition in your space. So we've seen, we're seeing this explosion of interest in impact investing. We're definitely seeing that at Wharton between students, faculty, alumni, other outside stakeholders that look to Wharton. Um, so how do you view competition in your space, um, especially considering what areas in the, in the country and in this market that you play in? Yeah. So most of it's good. We want more competition because on the money raising side of our business, we spend the vast majority of our time trying to explain to people in financial services what we are. We are always a square peg in a round hole. So the more square pegs there are out there, the more you know we'll generally start to be accepted and this will start to be a movement and more mainstream and less 
you know, this is this niche little thing over here in the corner, uh, which by the numbers, it, it still is. Um, and then in terms of the investment area, competition is always good, right? It's good for the borrowers or the people who are raising capital because it lowers their cost of capital. There is sometimes a lot of distortion, though, in the market where you have a lot of subsidized capital that can flood a market sometimes. And that is not good because it will crowd out private capital. Uh, so there's, like, there's some nuances to that. But generally speaking, thinking about how vast the resources of the capital markets are, the more competition the better, because we've just got to keep growing the pie. And what do you think you're seeing globally? So we're seeing impact investing being a real global movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what do you, are you focused only on the U.S. or are you focused on other kind of emerging markets too? Yes. So about half of our portfolio is invested in emerging markets. We only raise our money in the U.S., Uh, That's how we're presently structured. But we often will co-invest with international investors and funds, uh, from sovereign development funds to private international foundations. So I think one thing we're seeing is a lot more institutional capital being mobilized, particularly in the EU and in the UK. Um, We're seeing a lot of interest in places like India to support impact investing. Uh, It tends presently to be limited more in the equity markets, um, which makes a lot of sense, partly because of the stage of development in emerging markets. um, And you often need good equity markets to be functioning before you can have good debt markets function. And also, it's where you can take a lot more risk. um, And investors are willing to bear more risk. So I think right now you're seeing a surge certainly in the private equity arena, uh, less so in the fixed income space, which is really where, where we tend to specialize. So we're often kind of the first or the you know the only investor uh, in a leveraged fund where there's a lot of equity investors and we're coming in with a little, little piece of, uh, of debt in there, um, which is great because we get to learn a lot. But um, one of the biggest trends is this collaboration idea which is that you need multiple kinds of capital. You have to stack the capital um, in order to meet the market needs that you're trying to get to. And that usually includes grant capital for technical assistance and capacity building. Because if that market, if affordable private education in India were already investable, chances are the banks would already be investing in it. And so there's this capacity on the ground that really needs to be built while you get very creative with the sources of capital that you're using to really responsibly meet the needs on the ground. And that's probably the biggest trend we're seeing. So thinking of those capital stacks and, you know, the importance and the use of grant capital, does that does that have implications for the long-term viability of a market? How do you use grant capital effectively in, in the capital stack? It's a really, really good question. And it's really critical, I think, to the survival of the broader industry. And there are good examples and bad examples. But what I always remind myself is that, for example, the U.S. government subsidized our coal industry and our railroad industry for decades, if not centuries. And no one thinks of those as subsidized industries, right? So everything, you know, a lot of the markets we think of today as uh, market industries have been subsidized or continue to be subsidized in in various ways. Um, so, So the question of subsidies is a very complicated one. But thinking kind of at the next level of granularity about grant capital and where it's most useful. Um, 
is there's a, there's a couple of things that go into that. I think one is leverage. So understanding that for every dollar of grant money, depending on how it's used, it can either go straight into funding a program or straight into building a building, or it can be leveraged 5, 10, 20 times if you're pairing it appropriately with private capital as that risk piece, as that first risk-taking piece. And that's probably one of the most effective ways grant capital can be used. And then I think on the other side, it's it's essential in funding innovation and R&D in the industry. What kinds of interventions really work to improve the quality of life for people that are living in poverty or that are moving out of poverty? What sorts of civic infrastructure, what sorts of public goods and services are most important? Investors don't have the resources to invest in that kind of R&D and say, okay, this intervention works in these scenarios, and here's how we're going to replicate and scale them. Capital will come to that call to action, but philanthropy really and public services really have to fund it. Um, and that's not unique to impact investing in, in general. I mean, R&D in most industries requires some, some level of subsidy. I think those are two areas where we really need philanthropy to be active. What are the challenges, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, what are the challenges, you know, if you're working a lot with retail investors to doing this type of work and fitting into that capital stack? With retail investors, yes. So we do have um, kind of an extra barrier of burden of proof to demonstrate. Um, In addition to all of the reporting, both the financial reporting that all investors would require and the social impact reporting, um, which is another area I think philanthropic resources can play a much bigger role, and and they are. Um, And so, you know, we... We can't ask our investors to take the kinds of risk that institutional investors will take, that foundations will take, um, because people are investing their savings in us. And the state regulators are looking at that and saying, hmm, you know, what are, what are these people doing with these people's savings? Um, and so we have to be incredibly prudent fiduciaries. We have to have a really strong balance sheet. We have to repay everybody 100% and on time, which we've always done in the past. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not the kind of scenario where you can have a major misstep and go through a restructuring and have everybody kind of be okay. Um, there's no room for error when you're this small um, and this niche in the retail investment market, we have to have perfect performance. And that's a pretty high barrier when you're on the front line of a lot of these um, you know, experiments with society and capital markets. So one thing that I think is interesting to note is, is the number, I can't, it, the number escapes me, but of money that flow through remittances. Yep. So people that have left their countries live in the U.S. and still send money back home. Mm-hmm. So a huge market for retail inv- of, of retail investors, potentially. Are there products that you've developed that focus on that segment of the market? Yes, in a, in a certain way. So we have developed a uh, two diaspora engagement investment campaigns where we've created portfolios of investments or investments to be um, in certain markets. And in this case, one of the markets is India. And I'll use this as my example. Um, so we're investing in various social enterprises in India, and we are engaging with and talking to the Indian American diaspora, who we know is highly, highly active in investing and giving um, with, you know, a lot of very targeted um, ideas about where they want to put the money into their home regions or countries uh, to say, hey, here's one way that you can engage in investing for social benefit and social good and economic development 
in India alongside all of this other suite of activities that you do. So it's very complementary to the person who is sending remittances, who is investing in their you know family business back home, who's buying land and plans to retire um, back in India. This is just part of the kind of the suite of financial activities that someone can engage in. And remittances really do give a very interesting um, framework for how you engage people on this topic. And one thing about remittances that is really challenging and interesting is that uh, most people don't consider that investment. So the you know powers that be in the worlds of development and government look at remittances as investment. They constitute a really substantial part of most um, most of the economy. They definitely operate as investments, right? They fuel businesses, they pay for school education, et cetera, et cetera. They fuel cons consumption. Um, but the person sending the remittance doesn't think of it as an investment. And that is key because it means that that interaction of a remittance where someone thinks of it in their kind of their family bucket, their household bucket, is not the same part of the brain and the part of planning that that person is using when they think about their investment portfolio. So it's two separate conversations that are quite hard to map together, even though functionally that money is doing the same thing on the other side. It sounds of the like ocean. how we've we've looked at I make my money on one side and give it away philanthropically on the other. Exactly. It's that, you know, it's that distinction. And it's really problematic. And it's not unique to diaspora communities. Um, there was an interesting study about this uh, a few years back that I think, you know, was culturally, you know, socially agnostic that said um, people use this side of the brain for giving and this side of the brain for investing. Um, but the brain, as we know, is very plastic. And I think we can rewire <laughs> that tendency and the feeling of rewards when you know you've aligned your investments and your financial security with the kind of social values that you believe in and espouse in every other area of your life. It's just an extension of being a conscious consumer. If you have a bank account, you're an investor. That money's not just sitting in that bank account. That bank is using that money to invest in what they think is investable. So I really hope that you agree with that. Because otherwise, your money is being used to invest in things that you might not support. And that pool of assets, your investment assets as an individual in the U.S., is the large, single largest resource in the country. It outstrips public budgets. It outstrips philanthropic budgets. So if we don't move that money productively for society, whether it's here or you know internationally, um, we're never going to bring the right set of tools to the social problems that we try to fix. Coming back to the future of impact investing and, and your work at the Calvert Foundation, are there do we have enough talent if this is if this movement is to scale? What are the leadership qualities for the future? We do not have enough talent. <laughs> and part of that is because a nascent industry uh, is really bad at developing their bench. Uh, so so there's not a lot of kind of middle management uh, or you know MBA recruiting programs where you have a leadership uh, training you know for two months in each department. No one really everyone's running really lean and really fast. So it's highly entrepreneurial, it's fun and it changes fast, but there's not ever enough talent. Um, so you know the multidisciplinary nature of impact investing cannot be overstated. Pure finance is not enough of a background. Pure development and philanthropy is not sufficient background. Um, 
so so there's like this merging of understanding, you know, how to intervene at a social level, how to connect social interventions to fight poverty or to improve the environment with how the capital markets work. And there's a incredible amount of expertise in how you develop product and how you tap into various distribution networks that is really missing in the impact investment market um, with also the functions of running funds. Um, so, you know, loan servicing, you know, IT, um, things that are really basic, you know, really, you know, treasury management, you know, all the sorts of things that people tend to relegate to, oh, that's what people in banks do. Um, those are really critical for the industry. And so you need these people who have who are really excellent at those functions, who have a multidisciplinary exposure where they've worked at a foundation and they've worked at a bank or they've worked for city government and they've worked for a pension fund to really join in on the impact investing movement and to get it to get it to where it needs to go. Well, I'm just really excited personally for the future, and it sounds like you are too. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, this has been Margot Kane with the Calvert Foundation, and thank you again. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.